welcome to this week's episode of The Exit Plan, where I talk to Jonathan Baker, one half of a father and son M&A brokerage and advisory based out of Atlanta in Georgia. Jonathan was brought into the family business after a stint co-founding a craft brewing company. We have a wide-ranging discussion on some of the complexities of transaction structures, valuations, and positioning small and medium businesses for successful exits. Hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Jonathan Baker. Uh, I am half of the firm Punctuation, uh, and we <clears throat> we advise small to mid-sized marketing services firms um, exclusively. So there's two parts to our business. One is kind of on the advisory side, working on positioning, lead generation, that type of thing. And then the other half is on the M&A side, where we do uh, buy side, sell side searches, valuations, uh, help prepare firms for sale, and that is kind of the the uh, the half of the business that I work on. Um, we've been around since the late '90s. My father is the uh, the other partner in the business, the owner, and I joined about uh, three and a half years ago after uh, building a successful business myself. And um, we've been kind of just um, having fun building this part out together. Great. Okay. So he he managed to get you into the family business eventually. Reluctantly pulled me in. Yeah. I. <laughs> it's it was either that or get cut out of the will. You know. <laughs> Great. So so he he set it up then. Was he was he the, the founder, hundred percent owner? He's yeah, he so he ran his own agency in the 90s and then he's been founder 100% owner of uh Punctuation which has gone through a couple name changes. Um but the entire time he basically hates managing people um and I'm the only one that he will allow himself to manage. Okay. <laughs> Great. And so so sorry, when when did you join? A couple of years ago. 3 and a half years ago. 3 yeah. and a half years ago. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you know, normally I kind of interview people who've either bought or sold an agency, but I think it's very useful to have people who are on the sort of transaction side of things to give a bit of perspective on what's going on in the marketplace, how these deals are put together. Um, perhaps we could start with um, just sort of giving me a sense of the, the sort of su- the size of businesses, the types of businesses <clears throat> that you tend to work with. You said they're all sort of marketing services. Um, what's the sort of range um, in terms of revenue and number of employees and EBITDA? Yeah, so revenue generally uh, between one to um, 10 million a year. Um, EBITDA... 250k up to 5 million um you know all marketing services but that's still a pretty broad swath right that's uh digital you know branding pr seo sem um video production um you know professional services business that all specialize kind of in the creative realm and probably 80% of our work is in North America, but we do a good amount of work in Australia, the UK, um, and Central South America. Okay. And what is your um, 
kind of onboarding process when when, when someone gets in touch with you saying <clears throat> i have a business i want to sell um what what kind of questions do you ask and and are there criteria that would kind of exclude someone out of you um taking them on as a client yeah i think you know part of our role as a broker here is is similar to the role of a counselor in kind of a personal relationship <laughs> um and so part of it's finding the right cultural fit and so you know we're even if someone meets all of our criteria we might not necessarily be the right fit for them um so the first thing we do is just try to suss out, you know, are we going to get along? Do we think about the world in the same way? Are they going to listen to us? Um, if you come in with preconceived notions about what your sale looks like and what the number needs to be, and, you know, we're trying to tell you that, look, the market has changed and, you know, your expectations are a little off, then maybe it's not not a good fit. Um, it's hard for us to have a really strong perspective on, selling someone until we do at least some kind of initial valuation <clears throat> and so that's usually a good first step um, and frankly a lot of our m a engagements start out as just smaller valuation engagements where people want to know you know what's what's my business worth um, and we can talk them through not only you know the final number there but um, how it's calculated mm -hmm. and what goes into it and how it's different now versus, you know, maybe 18 months ago, what has changed and what are some of the things that they could do if they want to kind of increase their value in the next couple of years. Okay. So, um, I mean, I think that's a very interesting topic to spend a bit of time on is, is, is valuation. Um, and especially at the sort of lower end of the market. So, you know, say you've got a, a business turning over about a million, doing twenty percent EBITDA. Um, what kind? How how do you approach valuing a business of of that size? Well, first, every valuation is is crafted for a specific purpose, and so if you're looking at a valuation to take a firm to the open market, <clears throat> that might be slightly different from a valuation if you're trying to merge two firms as equals. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, assuming that we're taking this firm to market, you're asking how, how would we approach evaluation like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in firms that size, I'll say one of the biggest factors is usually the amount of money the principal or principals are paying themselves. Yeah. Um, because yeah. that can flex your income up or down. Um, and, you know, anyone any sophisticated or reasonably sophisticated buyer is going to look at the numbers you're paying yourself and kind of not give you credit if you're underpaying yourself. Um, they might give you extra credit if you're overpaying yourself. Um, and also in firms that small, you have to ask the question of, you know, who on the team is going to be able to carry this work forward if you are exiting in the next two to three years, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that salary point is, you know, I've, I've come against that a few times and, and sometimes owners are, are paying themselves a lot of money and if they're planning on staying around, they then, you know, that creates a sort of slightly awkward um, conversation because it may be that they sell their business but then have to accept a lower, well, I guess the dynamic is, is if they accept a lower salary, then the valuation is higher. <laughs> So there's that kind of push and pull <clears throat> there between 
And, and it's hard also to find a market rate. Like, how do you go out and find a market rate for MD of, you know, small marketing service agency? Yeah. I mean, you, you hire us, basically. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're exactly right. Uh, and frankly, for firms that small, sometimes we advise our clients, you know, it might be better if you just run this firm as if you're not going to sell it and pull out as much money as you can over time. And so you're kind of, you might even end up in the same place financially. It's just taking you, you're doing it kind of in a step function versus all at once. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, do you ever, on the advisory side, do you kind of do um, sales to employees? Um, that kind of thing we do yeah we do a lot of internal transfers right um and you know oftentimes uh principals will come to us not knowing exactly what their exit plan is right and they might have a key employer to that they wonder do they have the chops how can we make this work i know that they don't they're not flush with money you know, how do we make a sale like this work? And so part of what we do is also help, you know, first uh, identify if those folks are the right people to be running a firm, because oftentimes they're not as entrepreneurial if they're already employees. And and then second, how do we get creative kind of, you know, making a deal that works for all parties? Yeah, yeah. Um... And I've completely forgotten what I'm going to ask you next. <laughs> I had a question, um, and it's gone. Is it internal employee related? No, no. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about the market. There's, okay, so I was going to ask you about the sort of marketplace element of it. So if you are taking it to market, how do you go about going out and identifying, finding potential buyers for a business? Right. <clears throat> yeah. And that's really like the, the hardest part, right? Is usually once you've, once you're ready to go to market, how do you actually find a buyer? Um, and in our case, we have, because of the advisory side of the business we do, we have a, a newsletter, we send out content weekly, free content to 14,000 um, agency owners and, and executives. So we use that list. Um, and then over the past few years, we've also built up a list of potential buyers in this space. Um, for the size of firms that we're talking about, it's usually other mid-sized firms. Um, and then there's some holding companies. There's also some kind of private buyers, some folks who just are looking for one opportunity. They want to, you know, take a, a business and, and grow it. Um, we don't work with holding companies, you know, you we're not working with private equity. Usually, um, we might work with some family offices, um, and maybe some smaller private equity, but, um, for the most part, these are just kind of smaller deals. Right. And, uh, and then finally we do a lot of just research. So based on the firm that we're representing, who do we think would be a good fit and can we add? some more firms to our database. And so there's a lot of just, you know, <laughs> good old fashioned work. Okay. Yeah. So do you, so do you have a team of people that do that? How do you go about that sort of um, outreach? The team is really good looking, uh, really smart. And the team is me. Right. <laughs> 
Okay. So, I mean, is it, I mean, is that sort of, I mean, do you sort of automate that? Do you kind of set up a little LinkedIn bot to go out and add people that fit your criteria or do you do sort of cold emailing or like what, how, how do you? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we use referrals whenever we can um, because, you know, we work with other M&A advisors and other private equity firms and they're connected. And so we'll, we'll try to get as many referrals as we can. We do a fair amount of cold emailing, um, but it's not, you know, uh, but each email, we try to learn a little bit about the company we're emailing before we email. Um, and because of, you know, you go to our website, you can tell we're credible and we're not messing around. And so, um, we actually have a pretty good success rate with the, the cold emailing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really like LinkedIn stalking for sure. Um, there's also a few agency databases, depending on what part of the world you're looking at, that you can use um, to help identify the right size firms. And then you, you know, go back to LinkedIn and <laughs> there's no like secret sauce. It's just... Uh, it's just sleuthing, internet sleuthing. Yeah, yeah. If you ever listen to this podcast and you think that you would like to be able to ask the speakers some questions in person, then I have got just the event for you. On the 31st of January, I'm hosting the first Exit Plan Live event. I've invited three speakers to join me. Nick Berry, M&A advisor and partner at Green Square. Lisa Pasca, who sold her SEO agency Verve to a network agency group. And Joe Lewin, the CEO of Foundy, an M&A marketplace. We'll be recording a live podcast, followed by a Q&A that won't be recorded to give you the opportunity to ask the speakers about your own plans for an exit. Um, it's at the Riding House Cafe in Fitzrovia and kicks off at 12pm on the 31st. Um, please note that I've changed the time. It was going to be at 8am, but that's a bit early for people coming in from outside of London. Uh, link to buy tickets in the show notes and hopefully you can join us. Do you... Um... Do you sometimes take on a business that you struggle to sell? And, and if so, why why would a business potentially not, not sell? We absolutely do. Um, and I think of the M&A environment as cyclical. So it's kind of in these annual cycles. And so even if you've got a business that is very sellable, that's not a guarantee that the right buyers are looking at the right time. Um, oftentimes, <clears throat> you know, these mid-sized firms that are buying up other firms, if they've already got two deals on their plate, they don't want another one. And so they're like, sorry, we're not a buyer right now, but let's check back next year. Um, and then you might have something like, you know, interest rates rising, for example, that knocks folks with the, the uh, with debt financing out of the equation. Um, so we try to be upfront and let folks know that, you know, we're going to take a good swing at this and we're going to try um, everything we can, but we will let you know if we don't think we're going to find a buyer this cycle. Yeah. Um, we try not to take on firms that we don't think we can sell. So, you know, everything we identify in a firm, um, tight positioning, you've got strong EBITDA, strong client base. You don't have to have all of this necessarily, but some combination of some of this stuff, recurring revenue, um, you know, even the right geography, frankly. So if you've got, if you're based in New York, 
you're much more attractive to some firms in Eastern Europe, for example, who are trying to kind of gain a foothold in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's a lot of different factors. Yeah. Okay. And how? Um, what kind of deal structures are the most common um, for, for the types of businesses that you're that you're selling? So I'm going to strip out internal transfers because those are a little different. But yeah. um, generally, it's you know between forty and fifty percent down upfront. Um, and then a two to three year earnout with uh, the remainder of the money kind of split between those two to three years in terms of payouts. And then those those are based on either hitting top line revenue numbers, uh, maintaining or growing EBITDA numbers, uh, sometimes tied to uh, client contracts if you've got kind of a particularly high profile client that's a, a big portion of your sales. And then, um, you know, there's an employment agreement that's separate from that, right? Which, I mean, doesn't, I mean, you could actually leave your firm as soon as you sell it. You're just kind of foregoing yeah. <laughs> that, that future profit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there any kind of unusual deal structures that you've seen or, you know, tail, you know, just trying to think of, interesting interesting ways that people have have done it because in my experience i've i've kind of looked at lots and lots of deals and um every deal is is different and and some of them you know you end up with you know just structures which are which are quite different i'm kind of looking at one right now which is which is uh, being calculated in a slightly different way so just wondering what what you've seen yeah i think we tend to get the most creative when uh the buyer doesn't have any money right, right. uh <laughs> um and so you can only get so creative because you need to find money but it can be future money um so you know we've worked on deals where you're only paid out of future profits for example with like a really small number down Um, maybe you have the seller you know, funding a lot of the kind of working capital up front mm-hmm. um, instead of taking the balance sheet off of the books like they normally would. Um, you know, yeah. these things can be structured as long-term loans. Um, what, why, would, a, why would someone sell a business to someone who doesn't have any money? <laughs> um, oftentimes it's because you know there are other there are other reasons to sell a business besides making a huge pot of gold and frankly if you're trying to make a huge pot of gold in the marketing services space you are in the wrong industry um but if you are you want to find the right place for your employees you want to find the right place for your clients sometimes you know that's someone you already know, for example, that just doesn't have the money, um, but you know that they will be an amazing leader of the firm. Um, so that's and that's probably one of the most often reasons we see this happen. How does your um, your business model and your pricing structure work? And and how do you make money in, 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 in that instance? Um, so... <clears throat> If someone is bringing 
if someone has a uh, a buyer already, we just it's a flat twenty thousand dollar fee. We don't take any percentage or anything, um, and we just work with them throughout the deal, whether it closes or not. Hopefully, it does. But you know, we also have strong opinions, and if there's a point where we're like, you know what, we don't think this is good for you, um, we'll tell you. Um, if we are going out and doing the search, that's when kind of a success fee kicks in. We only take a percentage of the amount of money we can uh, get for you upfront at closing. And so that ranges between four to 10% based on your size. Um, so it's usually two to 5% of the total deal. And it's on the, the lower end, the larger you are. So, you know, if you're a smaller firm, it just, it takes the same amount of work on our part. And so we have to take a bigger cut um, just to make sure that we're compensating ourselves for our time. That's interesting. So how come um, you've decided to do it based on just the money up front rather than the total valuation? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One, um, often that is where incentives are aligned because um, a lot of founders are looking for a large percentage up front. Um, and, and probably second, the most, the most important is that we don't want to be doing accounting into the future. <laughs> um, we like to keep the, these things simple and, you know, we, we had a relationship with you and now you're off doing your thing and we're off doing our thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it, it, I just haven't heard of, um, I just haven't heard of that particular structure, but it makes a lot of sense to me because then, you know, yes, you're not, you're not then dependent on that business performing well for the next three years. You know, that sort of feels like it's quite a risky place. Yeah. And that, look, you know, asking, Oh, well, can we see your financials? Let's double check that. And, uh, we're, we're look we're working on the smaller end of the market. So, um, you know, these are, these are smaller deals and um, we try to keep things as simple as we can. And how do you go out and find your potential clients? What kind of marketing do you do for yourselves? We do very little active marketing. Um, our newsletter is our biggest referral tool. Um, and so we, we give out a lot of free advice and people follow that. And when the time is right, they come and hire us. Um, the other thing we do are events. So we have probably five to six events we put on a year, um, ranging from, you know, we have a small M&A seminar that's 25 principles um, kind of capped um, on preparing your firm for sale up to uh, Mind Your Own Business, which is a 200-person conference. Um, and that's not just for principles. That's for kind of anyone in, in firm. Uh, agency leadership and you put you put that event on or we, do. That... we oh, do okay is there not a piece of software called mind your own business myob there might there might be but we do hold the trademark for the event oh you do okay fine all right well i'll get that software to go and <laughs> yeah right uh, you... yeah <laughs> nice try yeah yeah nice try, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay so you do you organize that big event as well where, where are you guys where are you based uh, so I'm in Atlanta, and my my father's in Nashville. Okay, and where do you where do you host these events? Um, all over the U.S., but I'll say our home base is kind of Atlanta. Um, 
because I'm the one who <laughs> coordinates them. Um, but we're doing a benchmarking seminar in Seattle, for example, um, this spring. So we try to kind of move them around based on the subject of the event so that um, it makes it easier for some folks to attend. Okay. Um, and how how come, how did you sort of get into operating in this in this particular space? Like why the sort of small, medium-sized business? So, I, you know, my father ran a small agency and I think he realized that there just weren't many resources um, for agencies that size. And even if you look at benchmarking, there was there was no one, you know, in the early 2000s doing that kind of work. Um, they're doing it for other professional services firms. So architects, lawyers, you know, law practice, uh, um, uh, health practices, but this was a bit of a unconquered territory, and generally it's, I think, filled with people who are really smart, really talented, and want to do really good work. Um, it's filled with good people who just need a little help, and, you know, I think we saw kind of a a need to fill there. Yeah. Um. And give me some success stories. Tell me, tell me about a, a, a business that you've sold that's done really well. <laughs> uh, okay, so in twenty-five years, I'll give you a couple success stories. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think. Uh, let's see. There, you know, we had one one agency who um, came to us with an offer. Um, asked if we could help review the offer. We took a look at it, said, we think this is low. We actually think we can do better. Um, so let's shop it around. Ended up finding them an offer much more attractive. Um, and they ended up selling and, you know, are doing well. Um, I think a lot of... <laughs> a lot of the success stories tend to be fairly boring because the success is actually um, us catching something in the contract or something that would have made their earn out a living hell or, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's more about risk mitigation and <laughs> yeah. having seen so many of these and the way that they, the, the deals go south, like how do we protect you against uh, let's see, you know, if, if you are selling to, uh, a partner, um, a minority partner, is is there a way for you to buy that back without getting fleeced if that partnership is not going well? So that would be another success, I think, that we've had, but yeah. it's yeah. not, uh, probably not podcast worthy. Right. Okay. No, I mean, but that's, that's interesting, isn't it? It shows that the sort of the expertise that you guys bring is actually, yeah, it's about risk mitigation. It's about sort of preventing people uh, falling into sort of common pitfalls um and yeah that's super important yeah boring but important boring but important. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um and what's what's the i mean 2023 weird year all round it certainly was in the uk how how was it for you guys it was definitely weird um i think a lot of firms had pretty soft q1s and q2s um, and so that kind of knocked them out of 
the running for sale uh, immediately. But then on top of that, you had interest rates rising, um, which knocked you know fair amount of buyers out of the market. So it was really just kind of a softer market overall. There's weren't as many buyers, weren't as many sellers. Um, there certainly were more buyers than sellers. Um, so, you know, folks were clamoring for deals, but um, multiples because of the kind of economic uncertainty uh, were, were beat down a little bit. And so uh, multiples are still a little low, uh, at least lower than they have been at their peak. Uh, but um, late fall, we started to see things turn around. And, um, you know, we've now got two, possibly three firms that we're actively taking to market in the next month or so. Okay. And um, we're definitely starting to see things pick up. And frankly, as soon as we test the market with a firm now, we're seeing immediate interest because there's just nothing out there. <laughs> right. That's interesting. So, so you, you actually think it's a buyer's market? Sorry, a seller's market at the moment. Uh, I think it's a seller's market if the seller is willing to take a slightly lower multiple. Okay. So it's 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 a seller's market in that it's easier to find a deal, but it's not necessarily going to be the same deal that it was 18 months ago in terms of you know what's the the top line number look like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And. Um... A lot of my listeners are in the UK. Uh, what what benefits are there to listing with a broker in the US? Do you think? <laughs> uh, I mean, there are a ton of buyers in the US, um, and I think US buyers tend to be a little bit more optimistic, um, just culturally, um, than I, some. I, I agree with that. Yeah, that's been my my experience as well than some of the UK folks. And so, you know, you, you might, that might show up in the, in a better multiple, it might show up in better terms. Um, it just might show up that in that you have kind of more leeway to run your company as you were running it while you're, you're doing your earnout. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting market because it's, it's kind of self-fulfilling in a way. You've got these small firms that end up selling to medium-sized firms. The medium-sized firms sell to large firms. The folks that were at a small firm that were are now at a medium firm because they got sold are like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm going to start my own. So they start another small firm. Then that grows to a medium-sized firm. And, you know, the cycle continues. Um, and uh, we see that play out time and time again in the U.S. There's just so many i think not only is the perhaps firm culture different but the um the the client culture is different so mm -hmm. you've got you know a big tech industry you've got um you know sports industries you've got a lot of folks that value marketing spend and aren't necessarily going to be cutting it drastically even if the economy goes down yeah uh, those were bad examples because tech certainly cuts marketing immediately, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's coming back now though, isn't it? Tech tech's coming back, I think. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and then for you guys, just sort of 2024 looking forward, um, are you, are there any sort of developments within the firm? Is it kind of just more, more of the same? What, what, how are you planning on growing your, your business? Um, you know, we're, we rebranded last year. Um, we are <clears throat> rolling out a new um, digital tool to help firms with their benchmarking. Um, if that goes well, we'll actually probably take that and add valuation to it so that there's kind of a digital way to track your valuation over time with folks like us who, you know, do deals and are, have an active pulse on the market. Um, but we don't have huge growth aspirations. We just want to do good work with good people and, you know, keep it rolling. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's good. Not everyone has to uh, have aspirations to conquer the world. <laughs> yeah. We think of growth as uh, neutral. So growth is not bad or good in and of itself. Yeah. Growth should not be the end goal. What is your end goal? And if it takes growth, then go for it. If your end goal is to have a lifestyle business, not manage many employees and take home a reasonable salary, you might not necessarily need growth. And so stop fighting for it. Yeah. Great. I like it. Nice perspective. Cool. <laughs> um, any, okay. So a lot, you know, a lot of the listeners to this are um, business owners interested in one day having an exit plan, selling their business, any sort of advice for what they can do to help make their business a more attractive proposition to an eventual buyer? Yes, a few things. Uh, one, on the easier side of things, I would say clean up your financials. Um, yep. It just makes things a lot easier. Um, balance sheets in particular tend to get neglected because you don't necessarily use them daily, right, to operate the business. But it's one of the two most important documents in terms of a sale. And so make sure that you understand everything on there and, and you're not trying to hide anything. Um, slightly more difficult, but probably the most impactful thing you can do is tighten your positioning. Um, if you think about who the buyers of your business are going to be, it's going to be someone larger than you so likely they will have a broader positioning than you and they will um, value someone with a deep expertise in a certain area, deep clients in a certain area, because that is something that they do not have and cannot create. Um, so, uh, you know, they don't want to buy another generalist firm. They can do that themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that's, yeah, that's great, great advice. Cool. All right. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you would like your question answered in M&A Q&A or are wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, drop me an email on barnaby at foxcogroup.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn.